What is going on, everybody? I am Greg Helbeck, and my co-host, Michael Pinter, and I are bringing you another episode of the New York Real Estate Investing Show. This show is all about how to be successful in New York State, one of the best places and one of the most difficult places to do business in. And each and every week, Michael and I are going to bring awesome content to everybody who wants to learn how to do this business successfully in New York. Between the both of us, we have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals. We've made millions of dollars and we've also made a ton of mistakes. So if you want to try your best to avoid those mistakes, definitely take a listen to this podcast. Every single week, we are going to provide actionable tactical steps on how you can be successful investing in the Empire State of New York. Stay tuned and welcome to the show. All right, welcome back to, I think we are, Mike, is this episode three of the New York Real Estate Show? we got a great show today. Thanks for downloading another episode. I'm really happy you were able to uh, tune in today. We're going to talk about one of the most important things in real estate investing, which is communication with other people in our situation that sellers a lot of the time and how to really be an effective communicator. And the reason I'm saying communicator instead of selling is because at the end of the day, we don't really sell in this business. We get people to do things that they already wanted to do, but we do it in a way where we communicate things in a certain specific way. So ultimately the prospect can come to a decision one way or the other. Michael and I are really passionate about this. We, we talk about it a lot. And uh, I think we're both pretty good at it, to be honest, and, and to be humble here. <laughs> so I think we'll be able to pass a lot of our knowledge on in today's episode. You are clearly much, much better at it than me. And you are much better at it than I'd say almost anyone else I know. I, I appreciate the kind words, but I think you're pretty good as well because uh, you got some years on me as well. So you've talked to more people than I have. I started um, learning it when you were teaching it with John Martinez. That is true. That is true. But you're still very good. I'm not going to let that change. You're, you're still really good at sales. Um, so... Uh, if, before we get going here, make sure that uh, if you're getting value from these shows, please share this with other people. I mean, this is a niche of a niche, if that makes any sense. So if you're listening to this and you're in New York or you want to do deals in New York, share this with someone else who needs to hear this. There's not a lot of people talking about this stuff uh, in New York, at least. So uh, that's how we grow the show every week and how we get more downloads. And uh, also, if you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever the heck you listen to this, that's how we grow the show as well. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the main topic. So, Michael, um, before we get into the the sales and the direct to seller and how to communicate, I want you to give the listeners a little bit about what your business was like before you even knew direct to seller existed. Because the reason I'm saying that is because some people like you don't even didn't even know this existed, and you were just buying properties at an auction, and you just need to make an offer, so you didn't even really need to really do any of this stuff. And now you, you know, you're in a completely different planet with the direct to seller marketing. It's funny. I remember you know, I was in the mortgage business for 17 years before I got into the real estate business full time. Yeah. And there were all these parts of the mortgage business that I didn't know anything about. And I would go to conventions and people were talking about things and secondary marketing. And we were just a mortgage broker in the beginning. So I didn't know what they're talking about. And the same thing really happened for the first four years I was in the real estate business. People would talk about leads. I don't even know what a lead was. So for four years, all I did was go every single week to the live auction in Nassau County, New York. And I would also buy from like REO agents, that means bank owned property agents and um, from online auctions. And that was it. So I wasn't, there were no leads in my life. It was just, I found the property and I bought it and, um, and it worked okay. I bought more properties and made more money each year I did that. But at some point, I think it was 2000, 16 or 17, um, I had a discussion and, and, and I heard about wholesalers, but I, I always thought they were like 
knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who just try to middle themselves into a deal and provided no value. I didn't really understand yeah. what was going on there. And I had a conversation with Brad Chandler, who I was trying to sell me coaching at the time, but he was like, and he, and he had been a guy who had rehabbed like 2,000 houses in, in the DC area. And then he said, and he switched to wholesaling. And he was like, it's a whole much better world. And I saw what he meant because at that point, I, I was rehabbing a lot of properties and it was, it was really hard to scale. I think we had like 17 properties under construction at one point. And it was, it was like impossible to find enough contractors who were competent and to, and to mm. manage all the things. Um, materials were going to the wrong address and <laughs> things just weren't getting done. And I said, like, it's, it's, it's very hard. So I, then he started talking to me about wholesaling. And I realized that the, and he said to me straight up, he goes, the only way you're going to buy things cheap enough to wholesale them to another investor is if you go direct to seller. Yeah. He actually gave me a plan. I think I have it written down somewhere. Um, and I, and that's when I started, um, that's when I started going direct to seller and it, it changed everything because you really have the ability to buy things cheap enough to wholesale them out. And wholesaling to me is a business that you can scale pretty, pretty, pretty largely without, without going bananas. A hundred percent, man. And that, that is something that, you know, as the market has changed, I mean, I've only been doing this really since 2015. So I wasn't around in the last 2008 or whatever. All I know is, is buying direct from sellers. I remember day one, I got out of a seminar. I was on Craigslist making ads. I'm going to buy your house for cash. So I've never dealt with a listed property in terms of going through an agent or going through a foreclosure auction, you know, as the buyer. And, um, it's a whole other planet. And I think that is where, Michael, I appreciate you sharing that because I wanted to give everyone some context because you didn't start in the direct seller field, but you were already successful as an investor. Um, to touch on the rehabs, man, I, I got it, man. I, I agree 100%. That business is a disaster. I mean, it, it is a great business. You can, if you do them in moderation, it's like anything in moderation is okay. They're fine. But if you're scaling out a rehab company, I mean, where's the closest freaking drawbridge? You know, because that that's just, there's too much shotgun yeah <laughs> yeah if you want to go easier yeah that, that's just it's there's too many i think with the rehabs there's too many points of failure wholesaling there's some points of failure but the worst 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 case scenario in new york if you are absolutely screwed is you lose your deposit which isn't great but it's not like you lost 800 grand on a rehab or something like that so right. um but also I, well, the way i look at it is if, if i'm if i believe that it's a wholesale deal then i'm usually thinking I can close on it also. So if I get a problem yes, with a buyer, yes, yes. my thinking is, listen, if I, if, I was, if I bought this cheap enough to believe that there's a spread between what, uh, what I paid and what, uh, what an uh, investor will pay, then I can also be the investor and do the- Exactly, exactly. My, my, my thoughts are that I, I try and buy things with, with, with options, right? Mm -hmm. Options let me sleep at night. So if I, and it's all a function of price. So if I buy it cheap enough, my first thinking is I'm going to try wholesale to an investor and make, it, uh, uh, make a good profit with zero risk and be done with it at the closing. But my second thought is if I have to close on it, maybe I can wholetail it. So maybe I can do minimal work to it. Now, obviously, the condition of the property will, will, will determine whether that's even possible or not. But sometimes you can just do a quick fix and then put it out, not at the top of the market, but at a disc, enough of a discount to the market, yep. where you'll sell it fast. And then if, it, if that doesn't work, I can always do major renovations to it. So that those things let me sleep at night. When I get into a, a, a deal and I go to contract on it, I almost always feel like I have multiple options on it. And 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 when if it, and if a buyer is flaking out on me, I have no problem, you know, 
telling them, you know, closing on it. Close on it myself. Yeah, that's so true. And it gives you so much more leverage too. The only time I get nervous is that if I, if like one buyer wants it and it was like a shitty deal and I'm like, oh man, this one guy wants, I don't want to close on it because it's not a great deal, but one guy wants it and you're like banking on him. But yeah, no, that we just funny. You actually just said that last week, I think after our podcast recording, we, a JV guy and I, Taylor Berg, I'm sure he's listening to this great guy. Um, very hard worker and he's really good at cold calling, but, uh, he brought a deal to the table and I said, dude, we're going to sell this thing at a premium. And, uh, Todd Toback, you know, put a good podcast on how to distribute properties and get the most money. We sold this sucker $20,000 over the asking price. We had, it looked like a Congo line going into this house. (laughs) It was in the city of Newburgh. And, uh, you know, we're going to make like $40,000 on this thing. And it's a little a, a POS in uh, not a great area, honestly. So the point of that is that if all hell goes in the handbasket and we have to close, we know we have a smoking deal on our hands so we can turn around and, and figure that out. So anyway. I just, just to, 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 to reiterate your point, I just closed on a deal yesterday that I was 100% sure I was going to need to close on. And then it was why is that JV deal. Let's see why. Where is the property, by the way? What what area? Hempstead, New York. Oh, that's by the Coliseum, right? It's right by Coliseum. It's right by Hofstra University. So, and it's it's the second one I did right near the Uniondale is the other area, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, you know what? The best, the way for me to really make the most money on this, and because of the price I was paying, I didn't realize that how much the market had moved. Uh, you know, I can I can maybe wholesale for a small amount, maybe 15, 20 grand, or I can make like, you know, 80 grand if I close on it. But I also came from a J, from a coaching student, and um, I said, let's just throw it out to the market. And we were in contract for three thirty, and I figured it was maybe going to go for three fifty, three sixty, um, and we got four twenty for it, which is ninety thousand dollars, which we're going to split. And the as Todd Tobeck would say, you in today's market you cannot. And Jason Lewis says this: don't pocket wholesale anything, right? So no. Off your list, and you're going to see crazy numbers. Right? Todd Tobeck's uh, advice I thought was brilliant. That he did on your Pave the Way podcast, I thought it was great. Like you can't in today's market, you you need an auction situation because the numbers people are paying are crazy. Now the, the people that are, that bought it, we closed yesterday, um, they're going to rent it. I think they're going to use it as student housing. So their whole use for it is going to be different than what I would do, and I think they're going to do great with it. But that number four twenty, I thought was you know when I first when we first got the contract, I thought it was unheard of. Yeah, it's crazy. You got to put it out there, yeah. That's great. Oh, that's the one that got all hairy, right? You were telling me earlier. Yeah, it was a mess at the closing. <laughs> I got one of those in a couple hours. Hopefully it doesn't get as bad. I'm willing to go in there with a baseball bat in case people act up. But anyway, so when it comes to talking to sellers, I mean, obviously we try to keep these shows 40 minutes, 30 minutes. So we want to, you know, we might have to do a part two. We'll see how much ground we cover here. But at the end of the day, I feel like there's really three pillars when it comes to talking to sellers off market. And uh, we'll tweak the show too to where like how it kind of how sellers are a little bit different in the Northeast, but particularly you know the the tri-state area, uh, and how you have to be a little bit different with them. But I think the first pillar we got to cover, Michael, that that will give a lot of clarity for everyone is qualifying prospects to make sure you're not going to invest time with people who you ultimately can't help. So I'll let you take it from the top on what do you do in your business and what do you as your team do now in your business to to sift through people who you ultimately can't help, but to make sure you're not just taking the easy way out and only looking for the guy who's going to jump off a cliff if he can't sell his house. Yeah, so that's great. So I, I have been, I have been um, 
tweaking a script for years. I think I have a great script. And if anybody wants the script, they can email me and I'm happy to send it to them. I probably can should sell it for thousands of dollars. But I, I so I'm a big believer in Brent Daniels, um, four pillars of motivation. Oh, I love that, man. And, love that. What they are. And that is you, you ask a prospect uh, based four questions. Um, because there's four different reasons why somebody might want to sell it at a discount. The first is, um, and I and I changed the time uh, from Josh Hines in Baltimore. He, he he helped me with this too. So the first question I ask is about time frame. So and this is really more from Josh Hines than it is from Brent Daniels. But because I I used to I used to do it in a different order. I used to ask about condition first, and I'd say tell me a little bit about the house. And they would drone on for 25 minutes about how their grandfather chopped down the trees and it's the first house there and there used to be a pond. And guess what? That's not relevant information for you. Um, so the first thing is time frame. So, I, so, and, and you have to say it in a certain way. You want to future pace them and say, and this is what I got from Josh Hines. He says, assuming we can agree on the price and all the major details, when would you want to sell it? Oh, I love that. Isn't that great? I'm going to totally R&D that thing, dude. And everybody falls pretty much into two categories, right? They're either right away, yesterday, in a month, um, can't be fast enough, whenever you can close. That's the good, good bucket. And the bad bucket is no rush. You called me. Oh, yeah. Don't care. So that's so that's that's the first pillar. The second question you ask, and also needs needs some emotion, is um, and you don't want to talk about the house yet, because they, they, the house can be a disaster, but you want to talk about the area. And you can say that's a great area. Now, even if it's a bad area, the truth is it might be a great area for investors. So I always say that's a great area. Why would you ever want to sell it there? And that's Love the that. second pillar, which is reason. So there's good reasons, right? I can't afford it. I inherited it. It sucks. I'm back on my, I'm up, back on my taxes. My kid, I need money for, to bail out my child who just got arrested. What, some, there are good reasons. And then there's no reason. I'm not in a rush. You called you me. Called me. Right. Yeah. So if, they, if I get two misses on those, so I, my lease manager, or my co-colos are all instructed to say, listen, we're in, so the three sentences, we're investors. We have to buy at a profit to make, we have to buy at a discount to make a profit. It sounds like we're not a good fit. So we push away at that point. And then what happens is either they go, you're right, goodbye, or they go, then the truth will come out. Well, wait, wait a second. You know, I, I have I have tenants in the in the basement that are illegal and they haven't been paying. Um, I didn't want to say anything, but the roof is caving in. You know, then you find out that all the, the truth. So those are the two, first two pillars. Assuming they either check one of those off or you push away with those three sentences and then they find out the truth. Then the third pillar is uh, condition. So I used to ask, like I said, tell me a little bit about the house. That is a huge time waster. So Josh Hines told me this one too. On a scale of one to 10, with one being a disaster and 10 being a cover of a magazine, what would you rate your house? What I like that. Inside house? Isn't that great? That's phenomenal. And that gets to the damn point because when they ramble about the plumbing, I don't give a shit. I'm getting the plumber there anyway, exactly. you know? So. So, oh, Josh's, so good. Josh's rule is seven or below is a deal, right? If they go below five, it's probably in terrible condition. If they say eight, it's probably in good condition. If they say nine, it's probably beautiful. And if they say 10, then they're full of crap. So a seven or below. A lot of people say seven for a house that's gross. Some people say seven for a house that's nice. You don't know. So that's condition. So that's the third pillar of motivation. So even if, so if they check off one of the two and then you find out like it's a four or it's a knockdown, so that's great. And then the last pillar is price, right? Because even if everything else was a little shaky, but then they give you a price that's really low. So I got from John Martinez and you and a few people, I have a three-step system for getting price that since I used it, I've got, I get priced now almost 80% of the time. I used to get priced about 20% of the time. 
So what you'll see from a lot of people out there is you'll see, they'll say something like, well, if I close all cash and I cover all the closing costs and I can close in two minutes, what's your price? And I think in New York, people really have their guard up more and they really do not want to give a first number. So I have three-step system to getting price. Number one is I say, and I got this from you, this is the takeaway. I'm guessing you don't have an asking price. That Those are Jedi mind trick words, right? I use them at, at airline counters, at hotel desk clerks, or they or whenever I have a problem, I go, I'm guessing you can't help me, but I'm seven hours early. Can I get a, you probably can't get a room. When you say, I'm guessing you don't, or I'm guessing you can't, something just works in people's minds where they want to do whatever that you're going to sell them after. Um, so I say, I'm guessing you don't have an asking price. And there's only three things they can say. They can say, yeah, my asking price is $400,000. That's a win. They can say, I have an asking price and not give it to you. And they can say, no, I don't have an asking price. And most people say, no, I don't have an asking price. If they say, I have an asking price, but they don't want to give it to you, then that you just say, I'm guessing you don't want to give it to me. And that'll work also. And I've heard situations where I had a, a leads manager at Coco and didn't do it right. And they told them, I'm not telling you, I want your offer. And then I said those words and I got the answer. So that's step one. If I don't get an answer from step one, I go to step two. Step two is, let's say they don't give me an asking price. Then I say, listen, we haven't done our research in the area yet, but do you know what similar homes in the area are selling for? And very often they won't tell you what they want, but they'll tell you that their next door neighbor was the you know, exact same house, just sold for $400,000. And whatever they say, I then say, do you think your house is worth more or less than that or those? That's step two. Sometimes you can't get anything there. So then the third one, I think I also got from you is, what's a number where you think you'd just be giving it away? Mm, I love that. They yeah, won't yeah. tell you what they want and they won't tell you or they don't know. They won't tell you or don't know what other houses are going for, but they'll tell you what they don't want. Oh, yes. I just turned down an offer for 325000 Yes. So, so that's that's helpful. Those are my three steps. That's the fourth pillar. So that's how we I qualify. But, the, but I, I tell anybody I'm teaching on my team that you can't be afraid to push back. And it's it's very hard for people in the Philippines to push back. They're, they, they, yeah, they're, they're culture. They're not very... They're combative people okay. they're, they're in customer service they're being they, they, they worked in customer service where they're told the customer's always right just say, yeah. sorry i apologize i apologize i apologize and i say don't be that way don't be afraid to push back and say yeah. those, those sentences if a guy is being difficult or a guy won't answer a question just say we're investors we have to buy at a discount to make a profit it sounds like we're not a good fit and yep. that that creates the truth and and is, is one of the most beautiful things you can say a hundred percent, man. And that, that is the big deal when it comes to sales is that what you just shared, number one was golden. So everyone can just listen to this and duplicate that. And I guarantee you, they'll get better results. But the biggest reason I've trained a lot of salespeople, I've been doing this for a long time. And the number one thing I see that per, not prevent, well, prevents salespeople from succeeding is spending time with people who they can't help and then thinking that sales doesn't work. And I always say this analogy, you cannot sell steak to vegans. I don't care how good you are at steak selling. If you're, in the, if you're mailing the vegan list, don't expect to make any money. So the problem I see is that people, they get all these leads, they get all excited, their phones are ringing, and then they're disappointed when sellers are like, well, I'm not selling at a discount or you mailed me or whatever. They don't have the... Um, either the experience or the training to be able to strategically qualify someone. Because then when you get on the phone with someone who you can help, your sales skills will explode your profits and they'll explode your ability to solve the person's problem. So that's why qualifying prospects is not talked about enough in this business. And I feel like, I don't care if you got a sales team of 10 or 20 people, 
there's a great book called 80-20 Sales and Marketing that changed the game for me. And the biggest takeaway from that book is like, yo, qualify people to see if you can actually help. And then from there, the strategies and, and you know, techniques will, will obviously expedite and, and, and explode things. Um, but that's pillar number one. Pillar number two, I want to cover here, and I'm sure, Michael, you, you can relate to this one a lot. I think it is, it's getting the seller to take a next step and always having the sale nudge a little bit forward, whether you're going to the closing table or whether you're going to, you know, the next step, which is they have to call their, yeah, an appointment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's, it's as me. I learned this from Todd Toback, who I've, I've learned a lot from that guy over the years. He's very helpful. It's like, you want to look at it like a bike pedal, like, you know, those bikes where you can only pedal forwards, you can't pedal backwards. Every, every conversation goes down the line to whether there's going to be an outcome, whether that's you're buying the house or not. So I'll give, I'll give you an example. This is where I see a lot of people get smoked, especially in New York, because you can't really sign contracts on the spot a lot of the time. Is I always love to say this. Hey, Michael, if you were really ecstatic over the price and um, you know the offer met all the needs that you were looking to accomplish here, what would the next steps look like in, on your side? Right. And I want to know what their next step is if they're happy with everything that, that him and I discussed. So that's where I see a lot of people screw up is they don't think about the seller or the prospect. They just think about what's the next step for you. Like they're not going to, they're not going to, like the way that that was asked is not going to land well in the person's mind. But if you say, Michael, let's pretend 30 minutes from now, you're ecstatic about everything that I have to offer and the, the offer just meets your needs and it is exactly what you were looking for. Everything checks all the boxes. If that were to happen, I don't know if it will or not, but let's just pretend it did for now. What would the next step look like for you? I want to know what that prospect is going to do after we have a discussion about their property. Because I see a lot of people go out, they make an offer, and then the seller's like, I got to think about it. And then they just like freaking, it's a disaster from there. And it could be a deal potentially, but they don't know how to control that seller. So I've, oh, go ahead. I don't do that. I, said, I certainly should. But what, oh, do you, dude. what do you hear a lot when, what do you hear from good prospects and bad prospects when, when, when you ask that? I hear one of two things. Um, I'm either going to move forward with it. And then I know that they're going to make a decision, but that doesn't mean I've closed the deal. That means that their ability to take, I know their action. I know their decision to take action. So the problem to solve for is not their action taking ability. The problem to solve for is how do I get them on the same page about the price? So it's almost like an algebra problem in sales. And what do you get from bad prospects? Uh, well, and then I'm going to take that offer and I got a couple other people coming or I, I got to talk to my aunt. Uh, we got to take this over to my attorney. You know, we got to go watch the Jets lose another football game and then I'll call you after, you know. So, so I'm, just, I'm just ripping on Michael because he's a Jets fan, but uh, he knows they're bad anyway. Uh, <laughs> but you hear that. And then the, the thing is, even if someone says something that you might not want to hear, it doesn't mean the deal's dead. It just means that, now you don't need to give them an offer right away because they're probably not going to make a decision and you have two problems to solve instead of one. And it, it just lets me see. It's almost like I'm the quarterback. Yeah, I'm not the Jets quarterback. I'm Tom Brady. And I, I get the snap and all of a sudden, like, I, I can see who's open. Is the receiver open right now? Can I throw it to that receiver? You know, is the tight end open? But it allows me to make a decision from kind of like the back of the field so I can see everything in front of me. How good, how good, a, how good a lead is this? Or is, it, you know, is there, are there more steps to take? Yes, exactly. How, where do, where do we really need to be at in order for this to make sense for everyone? So, and it allows me to not 
spill my candy, like they say, where like, I just give them an offer, they take it, and then they go run away and you never hear from them again, which happened on a property that I was trying to move into a couple weeks ago. And I'm pissed. I haven't gotten in touch with her since, <laughs> but uh, maybe she'll- that, happen, that happens to all of us, right? I yeah, mean, it happens to everyone. property we made an offer on, we bought it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was a smoking deal. Anyway, what, what were you saying? And what you were saying before about about uh, qualifying also, because I, I get a lot of people who call me and they say, you know, I did this for six months, and everybody was telling me there's no there's no for sale sign on my lawn or something like that. And what people don't get, I think, is that this is really a disqualification process. More yes, hundred percent agree. You gotta kiss a lot of frogs to get a prince, and as you said, making sure making sure they're qualified, right? Using it, right? If any of those four pillars of motivation are checked off, it, it could be a deal. It's something to pursue. For me, it, it's going to be a live, I'm going to go to a live appointment for you. It'll be, it'll be, I guess it'll be a phone appointment or maybe a live. And, and then making sure there's a next step is, is, is really, really important because a lot of people just leave it. And um, if it's, you, you have to act, act, actually define what the next step is or, or let them define what the next step is so that you can move it along the sales process. Yes. Yep. No, for sure. And that that's just so important to get the seller to build rapport. I think a lot of people think rapport is like, oh, we have both have docs and hound dogs and we both like the New York Mets. And like, that's like level one rapport. Level two rapport is when the seller and you bond over something else besides like a picture or a dog. It's like, they see that you're there to solve their problem and they know that you're looking out for their best interest. And that is like 10 times more powerful than like you guys both like in the Mets or something like that. So right. that, in my opinion, builds rapport as well, especially when you're like, Hey, whether I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to be helpful either way. So like whether I buy your house and that works for you or whether we just can't buy your house for some reason, I promise I'll point you in the right direction. And this will be a valuable conversation that builds a lot of rapport too, because they know that you're there to help them and they can, they can subconsciously see that from you. They're not just like you, you, that's how you separate from the competition too. A lot of guys will go in there, they'll tap on the walls. They'll say, this thing's a POS and here's my offer and take it or leave it. And it's like, that's why I don't really care about competition. Cause like most people suck anyways. Instead of podcast on this. I leave an appointment, any appointment, right? I tell them, listen, whether I end up buying your house, whether I end up listing your house or not, I go, you can always call me if you need help. You need exactly. I'll clean it out. If you need help, help finding someone to do anything. I go, I know contractors in the area. I know clean out guys in the area. If you need a, whatever you need, you can call me, whether yes. you use me or not, I'm here for you. And, and I've had people tell me, I, I have to list with my cousin or something, but you ask, you know, and I've given them and I've, and I've helped them. I, my job yeah. is to help them as much as I can. Exactly. And that's, a, that's the mindset. That's the, the, the abundance mindset. So that's step number two. Now, step number three here, I think let's make this more New York specific is when you get a yes, you got to know how to communicate with the seller and the seller's attorney, potentially how to put a discounted offer into the lawyer's office. So deals don't die at the table. And I, that is why I wanted to make sure that obviously the sales advice we gave everyone today was general, like you could do that anywhere, but this is a New York specific sales step. So Mike, maybe we'll cover this one 50, 50. I'll let you kind of lead. And then I'll add some things, um, you know, after you're done leading. Because this is something that, especially if you're new and you're doing deals in New York, this is a whole other planet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So people, I mean, when you talk to people who do this only in other states and you tell them that you leave an appointment without a signed contract, they look at you like you're from outer space. So for the people that don't know, in New York, a real estate transaction doesn't really take place between a buyer and a seller as much as it takes place between a seller's attorney and a buyer's attorney. So I just got a phone with a seller maybe an hour ago um, where... Um, I was explaining to him why my contract needs to be assignable. Um, 
So I, I, I believe in, once a seller says yes, I believe in planting three, if you're going to wholesale the property, or if you're not, you don't need to plant all these seeds, maybe one. But I believe in planting these three seeds in a seller's head. So the first one is I tell them, listen, leave the contract fully assignable. They never know what that means ever. They ask what it means. And I say, listen, I need the ability to assign the contract. And that's really there for your benefit, because I want to make sure that we close on the day we agree. And if something comes up before where it has to be moved to another entity, maybe because I'm using a private lender who wants to put, or put a, wants to, tells me the day of closing, they want to put it in their self-directed 401k, for whatever the reason, um, I need the ability to sign it. That's number one. Number two is, you know, standard deposits in New York are 10%. I do a lot of transactions. If I put 10% down on every transaction, I'd probably be out of business. So I'm going to give you $5,000 on this one, whatever it is, we come to some agreement. Yeah. Usually they say no problem. And then third, I go, I really need the ability to show the property because I want to start work. I want work to start on this the day we close. The only way work can start the day we close is if you let me get contractors and even potential buyers in here first, right? The potential buyers are going to give me a lot of guidance as to what the contractors are going to do. I'm not smart enough or talented enough to know exactly what needs to be done. If there's a, and for example, if there's a huge bedroom in the property, I'll go, I may turn that into two bedrooms. Or if there's a small bedroom, I go, I may open that into one bedroom. So I need to show it a couple of times. And then I say those things to them. Those are the three seeds that are planted. They never say anything to their attorney, but their attorney in ed, it ends up sending a standard contract to my attorney, which says not assignable, ask for 10% and doesn't talk about showing the property. So then my attorney comes back and says, uh, buyer said he spoke to your client. We need, we're only putting $5,000 down. We need a fully assignable. And we want just some language and an amendment saying that we can show the property one or two times. So then the, at that point, the seller's attorney calls as a client and says, what the hell is all this? And the, and the client usually says, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's fine. Yep. It's a much better conversation than if you don't say it. And then the seller's attorney calls his client and goes, what's all this? And the client goes, I don't know what the I don't know what this is. These guys are fucking me over. Yeah. It sounds, and like, then you're like, it sounds like these guys are really dangerous. So you want to plant those seeds so that the seller is ready. So the seller is ready to take that call from his attorney and say, yes, it should be no problem. And you want to do it when you get the accepted offer. You don't want to do it the day later. Like I am like adamant on like, okay, Donna, we're buying your property here. This, I just want to let you know how it goes down. And I want you to let me know what your thoughts are about that. Just so you and I are on the same page, because I'll tell you what, Michael, I mean, I think we talked about this in the last episode, but I don't have a lot of deals die with the attorneys anymore. Like it, it pretty much like maybe one out of like 15 or something, but like, Very rare. If, yeah. And another thing too, is the deposit is not as big of as an objection as I, it used to be. Like we, I'm pretty good now at getting my deposits nominal like compared to like the rest of the country. I mean, it's a lot compared to like, you know, Texas. Um, but, you know, because I plant those seeds and that's like the last step in the New York, you know, I guess, communication strategy, not a lot of deals go to the gutter now. I mean, we're pretty, pretty good on our stick rate in terms of getting the acquisition. Sometimes like there's a title issue or something, which is uncontrollable, but that is so important, especially if you're doing this and you're not in like Buffalo or Rochester, like, when you come downstate and you're like below Ulster County, I would say, I mean, a lot of these attorneys are number one, they're more expensive. And number two, they like to rock the boat just to rock the boat. And they think that they're, they like to pound their chests. So they're more, it, there's more, I think people are more aggressive once you start getting towards New York city. I don't know what the hell the deal is with that, but so when you, when you're charging two to 3000, yeah, that's the thing. It's more expensive. And, yes. And, and you're really doing nothing, right? Some of these guys work for two hours for a thousand or two, two, three yeah. thousand dollars. And they're not thousand dollar an hour attorneys, right? No. 
So they feel like they also need to be like financial advisors. At the closing yesterday, yes. the sales attorney was like, I advise my client not to buy, not to sell to you guys. And I'm like, well, he'd be fucked. He'd get a list pennies filed. But like the truth is, it's not your job to advise them whether to sell yeah. or not. Your job is to, to drop the goddamn contract. So <laughs> you're gonna get you're gonna get that from people and it and it and it happens, but it it's very rare that an attorney will kill a deal. Very rare. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you're planting the right seeds. But I think that. This podcast episode was important because a lot of people will get a lot of leads. We'll talk about lead gen in New York on some future episodes. But if you don't have the conversion skills dialed in, it, it, it can really be troublesome. So to summarize everything, number one, you got to qualify prospects so you can spend time with the right people. Remember listening to Brian Tracy Brook. He was like, he was like, number one way to increase your sales, increase your time with qualified prospects, double your time with qual. I'm like, holy shit, that makes so much sense. Like right. if you, if you think about it, if I can double my time with qualified leads, like you're going to make more money. Right. All these things are so common sense. I forget about them. So number one, you got to know how to qualify. We talked about that. Number two, you got to always have some sort of a next step or know what the seller's next step might be. So you can make sure you're moving in the right direction. And number three, New York specific, you got to know how to navigate the logistics of getting a yes into a actual signed contract, by the way, that Michael and I, in your favor, by the way, contract in your favor, so you can convert and uh, get these accepted offers into contracts. So Michael, I want to make sure we, we, we keep our uh, episodes, you know, 35, 40 minutes, which we did today. I appreciate everyone listening to the show. And uh, if you can, like I said earlier, if you can share this with some people, copy and paste it, share it around, put it on social media, leave a review. That's how we keep growing this thing. And uh, we'll talk to everyone on the next episode. Take care, Michael. Bye-bye.